0: Thank you, Leela. and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger. Now let me introduce you to our author, Leela Danielson. Hello, Leela. Hello. Nice to be here. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with my audience. Your book is a wonderful read. Uh, you have packed so much history of the left, of the radical left, into Musty's into biography. But before we get into the book... Um, I want you to tell us something about yourself, your background, how you came to write American Gandhi.
1: Oh, okay. Well, um, let's see. My background, uh, Well, I was born in New York City uh, and grew up in Portland, Oregon. My parents had been involved in the movement of the 60s, so there was a certain personal connection to the left right there. Um, and uh, so I was always interested in that history. Uh, I think more than my... Sisters, I identified with that um, because I was the oldest, and so I was alive at a time when the movement was still happening and then sort of watched it decline, and so I I was uh, sort of driven by that. Um, But then, so I went to University of Rochester as an undergraduate and uh, discovered these wonderful faculty members there, Robert Westbrook, uh, Christopher Lash, who were very interested in the history of the left as well. So uh, basically, I started approaching it kind of from a biographical point of view, um, largely because that was sort of the approach taken by Lash and Westbrook, and um, seemed to it, it seemed to be, it seemed to be a helpful way to kind of get into a story, you know, and and not just for myself, but then also for readers presumably. So I, my my senior thesis was on the cultural critic Paul Goodman, and. This connects to Musty insofar as he was an anarchist and a very interesting intellectual who was particularly active in the 50s and 60s, and I kept seeing all these references to A.J. Musty. And then uh, I went to graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin, and my first project was on James Farmer. His papers are there at UT. And as I did research on him and the Congress of Racial Equality, Musty seemed to be the pivot upon which a lot of that early organization turned, both in terms of theory but also in terms of organizational support, and um, especially in the early years of the Cold War, where really the Congress of Racial Equality would have probably collapsed had it not been for Musty's support. Um, So anyway, but trained in kind of more of an intellectual history way early on, but at UT Austin at the time I was there, uh, there were a lot of social historians as well, and so I was. That was very much an emphasis: is social historical methods. Um, a lot of people who had we had a lot of faculty who had been students of David Montgomery and Eric Foner, and so one of the things I think I brought to um, uh, this project. Oh, and I should mention my dissertation was also about the history of the peace movement and religion, and again, Musty was the pivot upon which everything seemed to turn. But at any rate, um, that was those that background helps to understand the way I approach Musty because on the one hand it's very much an intellectual and cultural history, but it's also a social history. You know, I really embed him in institutions and in organizations and so forth and with other people in community. So um, that's sort of how, that's my background, and I think it sort of explains how I came to A.J. Musty.
0: Well, what I was going to ask you about that was this biography, what was interesting about it, it's, it's about the radical left, but you really uh, weave throughout it uh, uh, Musty's faith, loss of faith, recovery of faith. And so what is the broader connection, do you believe, between uh, religious faith and the social activism in the 20th century? Because it has been portrayed often in scholarship. The left has been portrayed as being sort of anti-institutional, anti-religion, very secular, and you're not doing that. Which,
1: no, no. And I think that's, I think that, you know, I think that's a mistake that historians have, have made. And, um, and also, even in their narratives, it's almost as if, like, when I was looking at peace movement historiography for my dissertation, and also for the Musty book, I found that there was almost a sort of embarrassment about the religious faith of, uh, you know, the practitioners. And so it was, it would literally not be addressed in the books or in the, you know, in the scholarship. And, I don't know, but for whatever reason, maybe because I was rela- raised in a sort of irreligious, I mean, not like atheistic, but irreligious background, the, 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 the religious terms people use, the way in which they viewed the world just came out to me. And um, I had also been influenced a lot by Doug Rossnow's book, On the New Left, um, not only because he was the first person to really do a community study of the left, but he, of course, also uncovered this history of uh, faith you know this sort of liberal religious faith that many of the uh you the the southern and particularly the austin new left uh came out of and i thought that was so important and you know you see it in a j musty for example too because not just because he actually was in fact religious and we can talk more about that later but also because um uh it it it's so much uh it so much shaped their engagement. So I guess I sort of lost track of myself there. I guess basically what I'm saying is that that sort of existential approach, this idea that through action you sort of affirm this moral universe and so forth, I saw that so much in Musty. And, and um, you you know, when you get in the archives, too, you know, you have to be honest. I, I guess I really, maybe that's the social historical background in, in me, where I really felt like I had to be honest about what I saw in the archives. And when you see these uh, radicals circulating Kierkegaard, you know, and talking about, um, uh, Paul Tillich, I feel like you have to take it seriously. And then of course, Musty insists that you take it seriously because, you know, he actually had these transcendent religious experiences and they shaped how he, he, they actually shaped his decisions in the world. So
0: I don't well, know it, if I totally answered no, your question. No, no, no that's fine. Um... It seemed like musty when he he lost he had faith growing up he lost his faith for a lot of reasons then he recovered it did he come to a, he came to a point where he almost believed that it was essential yeah to have a, a religious faith or some sort of overarching thing a meta narrative of some sort to that sustain the activism
1: yes that's absolutely right because um you know First of all, there's sort of this anti-Stalinist critique that emerges in the late 1930s. This idea that perhaps, and this is before it kind of gets co-opted by the Cold War state, you know, it's within the left. It's a conversation, but there's a real concern that the left has has developed a too mechanistic view of, of the world and, and and adopted this sort of hyper materialism. And so the idea is that how do you how do you have an ethical code? Um, you know, in your sort of radical politics, and for Musty and for other people, um, some of whom have been sort of, um, I think, dismissed a little too easily in the scholarship, like Ignazio Salone and, and others, um, really believe that, that faith could help prevent you from, uh, you know, uh, violating human dignity, I think, um, but it also could help sustain you, and that was really crucial for Musty, too, because how, how do you maintain your radicalism without something higher than, than you, a sort of moral code or a religious code to sort of guide you in times of persecution,
0: times of marginality? So it really it was about avoiding despair. I think so. Because when yeah. you know, you're working with, uh, if you've been around activists who really are, believe in the cause, it, you can have burnout really fast. Yeah. really fast. So unless yeah. you have something that's way beyond the immediate work, you're going to burn out.
1: Yes, and you know, the other thing too, that's a really good point. The other thing too is, you know, a lot of these people formed communities. And 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 so the idea was that you should, you have to develop a certain kind of self-discipline and a sort of community and a relationship to community as a way to sustain you as well. And so one of the things I discovered in the archives was that they all, or most of the people under who Musty was, you know, sort of connected with, were all members of these little groups. At, at one point, they were even called Cells, which I think reflects Musty's background in Marxist-Leninism, where they would pray together, meditate together, and have certain commitments to, you know, to how you treat other people and how you treat, treat the earth and how you make a living and all of this. Um, but it very much was sort of to sustain, um sustain i guess the heart and soul while you were out
0: doing really hard work okay let's go back i think to who was a.j musty for our our listeners we're talking about him who was he how did he get into this because he started off as a minister his career Uh, how Mm -hmm. did he what is the transformation that happened from his childhood to getting involved in the labor movement as he did
1: yeah that's a great question so first of all who was a.j musty just real briefly um, I actually believe that A.J. Messy was one of the most important radicals in the 20th century United States, and he has suffered from tremendous historical neglect. And we can maybe explore reasons for that later in our conversation. Um Probably it has something to do with the fact that he was a pacifist, that he was explicit about his religious beliefs, uh, that turns people off. But if you get into the archives and you uh, and you read oral histories and you really take seriously what people say about their experiences, he was at the center, and and that you know he managed to stay at the center, a, a sort of pulse of you know um, radicalism throughout you know his long life. Um, and was and was. And, and more explicitly was the head of the American Peace Movement from 1940 until his death in 1967, and then had been very active in the labor movement. So how does this happen? Um, you know, he comes from a kind of a poor working-class immigrant family um, uh, he's a, a, and raised in the Dutch Reformed Church, which was a Calvinist in the old-school sort of way, right? Um, and uh, so faith and
0: ethnicity very much fused with him. Yes. So, so part, part of that is, of course... Interesting to me was that he came from a labor background. Yes. He didn't yes. come from, you know, progressive middle class people who were educated, who were trying to, you know, take care of the labor problem. They, he, he came from it. Yes.
1: And that's absolutely critical. And that's what differentiates him from a lot of the people in sort of the more pacifist movement or the civil liberties movement with which he was also associated in the 19 teens and the 1920s. And so, I, uh, it made him very, it, it, First of all, I think it it meant that he he had a very, my sense, or the the evidence suggests, is a very uh, down-to-earth sort of character. And so even though he, you know, didn't really drink or smoke, well, I guess he smoked, but he didn't really drink or sort of, uh, I guess, uh, usual behaviors we associate with labor. Exactly, right. Um, thank you. I was trying to sort of associate that. He, you know, in certain respects, because he was, this, had this Calvinist background, he didn't really connect cultural, in, in those sort of cultural ways with working class communities. However, he had this down to earth manner and, um, and had a real, real identifi- identification with and sympathy for the working class and the oppressed. And he, he felt comfortable among these immigrant communities. And others simply did not. Um, so you'll see him, other uh, pacifists, let's say, um, or Protestants. So um, he he talks a lot of that. Many of the figures who he was sort of close to in the 19 teens and early 1920s were Italian syndicalists, um, the clothing, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers, Sidney Hillman, and and those folks, the people associated with the uh, International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, and um, and just totally at ease and very much committed to the labor movement being led by labor people. Um, So anyway, so he sort of served this really great role. How he came to that is a longer story and it has to do with um, sort of um, intellectual and spiritual journeys that he went through in the 19 teens. And I can go into detail about that if you like, but so,
0: but what he, he became a minister and then he, he had to break with the church. Yes. Um, and uh, what was the main re- issue? What were the main issues that had caused him to break with the church?
1: So really the main issues had to do with theology. He had already broken with the Calvinist church. His first um, his first pastorate was at the, gosh, it's so funny I wrote this, so, but <laughs> you should forget, the Dutch Reformed Church. Um, it was on the Upper West Side, way, way Upper West Side of Manhattan. He was quite successful at that, but he started taking classes at Union, a theological seminary, and essentially adopted a more modernist or liberal view. And that meant he could, for him, that he could no longer, you know, minister in that church. And it meant that for them as well. So he, um, and he had also started to become a socialist of sorts. Um, it was part of the sort of zeitgeist of the time in Manhattan. Um, but really his journey out of the church was more about, um, I think, religion more than anything, because then he goes to... Um, uh, outside of Boston, I'm trying to remember, Newton, Newtonville, I think, in uh, Massachusetts, and he's a minister of a congregational church, and there he connects with all these sort of intellectuals and ministers who um, are Unitarians, and, you know, they start exploring pacifism and so forth, and he just could not reconcile his um, uh, his pacifism with the war, World War I, and Many of us know that during World War One, there was just incredible repression of people who didn't support the war. Um, pastors kicked out of their pulpits and so forth. And that's essentially what happened to him. Um, he, he's, he refused to condone the war. And so he was pushed out. And this kind of pushed him into the community of radicalism, right? Um, he became very active in the early uh, ACLU and then um, started to really get into sort of a, 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 a sort of culture of religious ecstasy in, in a sense. And this idea that you had to live like Christ and uh, and not just, um, you know, support progressive causes or labor, but you needed to be part of the labor movement. And he was also, he had been very successful as a minister. He was, that's one of my main points in my book is that he wasn't just an intellectual, right? He was actually an organizer and he knew how to do that really well. He knew how to in every uh, social movement that he was a part of, he was able to bring diverse points of view together. And, and then he also has this sort of down-to-earth sort of way about him. So when he, he goes into Lawrence, Massachusetts, when they're having this massive textile strike, within like a couple of weeks, they have appointed him the head of the strike. And this involved like 30,000 people. Um, and it's, I think, this ability to kind of bring people together, this ability to really relate to their struggle.
0: I mean, by then he really was a revolutionary too. I was very uh, impressed, I guess, with or noted that uh, how many uh, sacrifices he continually made, personal sacrifices for his cause or whatever cause he was taking up, his family, his church. I'm sure he lost a lot of friends. I mean, financially, he suffered. I mean, he really, uh, that was very impressive that he just sort of stu- stuck with what he thought was right no, more, no matter what, which I think is what takes to be a radical. You have to kind of believe in your cause so strongly that you're willing to, you know, go to the mat for it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's where also his religious faith helped him a lot. He was very sure of his convictions because he would. He also, I mean, and this I had to take seriously because it did affect how he acted in the world. But at various moments, like the time when he gets sort of kicked out of the or leaves, really, it's sort of a leaving to the congregational church because of his anti-war views he has some sort of transcendent experience that tells him that this is right, this is good. And so that helps to guide him, I think, throughout a lot of these twists and turns.
0: And he has more than than one of those. He has several, apparently, throughout his life at critical points, these mystical experiences that sort of revitalize him to continue on. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's right. At many points, it seemed like he could just, okay, this is the time to get out of this. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And it's really interesting. I mean, I think there's a couple of things going on there. Obviously, one thing that's going on is gender, that he you know, he has three children and a wife, right? So these decisions are gonna they actually do at times have very negative impacts on his family. Um and so, you know, there's a lot of that sort of gender presumption and his wife, you know, goes along with it, even though she suffers quite a bit. Um I think it's also true though that a lot of these Radical organizations, uh, you know, they did pay a salary. So it wasn't like he, um, like when he was at Brookwood, it may not have been a big salary or anything like that. But, you know, there was this belief, that, particularly in the labor movement, at least, um, that you
0: needed to fairly compensate workers, and your own workers in particular, right? Yeah, one of the things uh, that was interesting is his commitment to labor education. Uh, can you talk about what what that was about? What kind of education was he advocating oh. for labor?
1: Oh, absolutely. That that was, you know, one of the things I teach here at NAU is history, social studies, education. So I'm, you know, I'm sort of familiar with pedagogy and theory around education. And discovering the his work at Brookwood Labor College was, I feel like, one of the key discoveries of the book because they, you know, all of the, people involved with brookwood were real i mean they were real labor radicals or no, they were known as sort of the progressives within the labor movement right and but labor was defeated um after world war 1 it really was and there was a massive red scare and um and they were trying to figure out okay well how can we re- re- rebuild this labor movement how can we get them to organize industrial workers how can we kind of get this spark of idealism back And, um, and then also, you know, being involved in a textile workers union, that meant that he was connected to a lot of the needle trades and so forth, which already had education classes. So what did it mean to do labor education? Well, first of all, it meant that you were educating workers in, in, not to leave their social class, but rather to serve the labor movement. And so when they had students, they had to be students who came from, you know, unions. Um, they had to have recommendations from their unions and so forth. And, um, and so what they did is they sort of took that sort of pragmatic or doing method of experimental education, but they sort of um, took out the sort of parliamentarianism of it and the sort of individualism of it, because of course the goal was not to just become yourself as an individual, right? Realize your true self, but rather to realize your, you know, your social class, your the
0: working class's sort of destiny, right? And that's yeah. sort of and that sort of uh, kind of Bothered me a little bit. It's almost like he reifies uh labor. It's he has this idealized idea of labor as a class. It's sort of almost ontological, spiritual. And yes, he- and and how does he respond then to people in labor who aspire to get to become part of the managerial class? Well, that was the point, really. I mean, that's why he used
1: education. I mean, he thought education, and and I should add, his his ideas about education were not just about learning the different theories and, of um, you know, like Marxist theory or whatever, um, socialist theories, but also, you know, it wasn't just about, like, the principles of trade unionism, how to lead a meeting. I mean, those certainly were, you know, how to organize. Those were topics that were taught at Brookwood. Um, but beyond that, it was also... An attempt to sort of very much get workers to identify as the working class, not to identify with management. And that's why one of the key parts in this story that I think is really important um, is that uh, Brookwood and Brookwood Labor College, it needs to be pointed out. And this is where archives are so important. So what? It's one labor college. However, there were labor colleges all across the country, Denver, I mean, Seattle, everywhere. They were all getting their curriculum from Brookwood. They attended conferences together and all of that. So Brookwood really set the tone. And there's also the um, American Federation of Labor had state federations and local locals or whatever that also would have education classes. And they also got their materials from Brookwood. But anyway... He really um, starts to theorize this idea of a cultural front because this is at the time right when capitalism is getting very sophisticated. You know, they're developing welfare capitalism, they're um, and there's this whole new mass culture that a lot of workers are very, you know, interested in. And so he says, you know, all of all of that um, is educating them out of um, sort of their class. We need labor's own perspective. Labor needs to have radio. It needs to have theater. It needs to have. Um, uh, you know, all all sorts of cultural things that sort of represent uh, literature uh, that represent their, the struggles and prospective workers. So he and I argue that the, the people associated with Brookwood and with labor education, um, in terms of their organizing activities, in terms of their efforts to organize industrial workers and bring militancy in the labor movement, that sort of foreshadows and lays the groundwork for the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And if you look at who was leading labor education and the CIO. Who were the key organizers? A lot of them had kind of come out of this sort of labor education background, but also um, that they kind of come up with a lot of the ideas about the need to build this sort of cultural front against capitalist culture.
0: It's, it's interesting because labor is part of capitalist culture. It is part of capitalism, the whole concept of a labor class, okay, which is – So, and also, it's so when he's talking about class, he's not just talking about people who do manual work or machine work, but he's talking about a whole ethos, a whole attitude. But this class is buried within industrial society. So does he ever, so how do you challenge the capitalist order when you're part of it? Well, at least according to them,
1: um, the key was that you're going to build up working class power through organization and action, right? You're going to build up a working class, I, a working class that identifies as a working class, as workers, right? And with their own particularly particular worldview, um, in contrast to the ruling class. I mean, this is the theory behind it, right? So it's, it's so a mar- it's
0: a Marxist it's, outlook all all the yeah, way through. Yeah.
1: The Goal is to create a socialist society. I mean, that that was the goal. So presumably all of this working class power and culture would be used to overthrow the capitalist order. Okay. And that
0: was yeah. Now, Musty was, he's, he's working with labor, but he appears throughout the book much more radical than the labor leaders, than labor than the workers themselves. Because he's trying to raise consciousness. But he seems like he's way, way ahead of most of the leadership. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point.
1: Um, Okay, so uh, there's a couple of points to make there. First of all, his relationship to the AFL. And then secondly, this whole question of the working class. Um, the AFL is interesting throughout the 1920s. Really earlier in the decade, it's a, it's a little more progressive. You know, it has just come out of all of, you know, all of the ferment around World War I and so forth. Um, but by mid, and, and so Musty, have, Musty and other labor progressives have some reason to hope that they might be able to sort of transform it or make it a a broader, more progressive organization. But that really changes by the, you know, 1927 and so forth. And it's no accident that uh, the AFL decides to red bait Brookwood Labor College right at around this time, essentially to destroy it because it actually had become a significant social formation that represented – you know, sort of this progressive, idealist wing of the labor movement. And so, yeah, absolutely. He, um, the AFL and its key leaders very much turned against him. And um, and and he, he did not actually respond by saying, you know, forget the AFL. He said, you know what we need to do? We need to just do what we need to do. We need to organize and organize and organize and take action. Right. And so that's when he founds that group, the Conference for Progressive Labor Action, which brings together what was co- what at the time was called the progressive um, or I'm sorry, the um, idealist realist. That's what they were considered, the idealist realists, um, because they weren't like the communists. This is how they define themselves, who were so unrealistic and so out of touch because they had entered their sort of third period. Um, they were they were interested in workers, their experiences, organizing around their subjectivities and um building up working class power that way through experience right and action that was their sort of theory and this gets to this whole question of the working class because musty in the early 1930s is very much you know embodying this idea about pragmatism and working class pragmatism that's what i call it in the book um while also having all of this idealism right the building of a new world uh, you know a new socialist society um so what he and all the people associated with him, who were actually, you know, militant unionists, um, not middle class uh, intellectuals, which is sometimes how the movement is characterized. Anyway, what they did is they, they were often in the, within their own unions or they, you know, went off and organized other, um, uh, you know, other sorts of areas or industries. What they really, really thought, and they organized the unemployed, was that through this experience, right, striking, action, Um, uh, organization that the workers would inevitably turn toward socialism. But instead, where did they go? To sort of a more democratic socialism or social democracy, right? Kind of turning to this emerging New Deal state as the way to um, sort of get labor reforms, but not revolution. And that really is a crisis for Musty because he has this whole idea that through all of this action and experience, they will, of course see this light of the revolution, but instead they kind of moved moved toward a sort of social democratic politics, and that's just anathema to him.
0: Well, it was interesting about what you talked about, his idealism, which you you say uh, basically he's always sort of portrayed as this kind of radical idealist, but you make a very strong case for uh, his pragmatism and what he picked up from pragmatism and how he combined it with idealism and he was that gave him a flexibility that mm-hmm. he otherwise would not have had
1: absolutely yeah i think i think that's one of the things i mean you can't help but when you look in the literature like or in the the archive about musty and what people said about him is that he was you know this revolutionary but somebody who everybody liked who he was able to bring different points of view together. He was able to sort of, I mean, he basically had this sort of dialogic method of communication, and that did kind of reflect his commitment to pragmatism. So he's always trying, for him, it's always important to ground your ideals in community and, and, and reality and experience, right? And so that's what we see him doing all the time. He has these sort of revolutionary ideals, whether, you know, um, if they're connected to the labor movement, or later to I don't know the peace movement, or or, or the uh, Black Freedom struggle. Um, however, his ability—I think one of the things I argue is that over time, his ability to sort of—he has you know—to sort of take his 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 sort of prophetic stance, you know, against power, against the sins of American empire and capitalism, or whatever—and sort of ground it into reality and build. Um, build these movements, it 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 it, it becomes in- increasingly impossible for him. Or he always encounters that it tends toward reformism, and that also bothers him. So, okay.
0: what is, is how did he become disillusioned with labor? He was so enmeshed in it and so in- committed, and then he becomes very disillusioned, and you begin to see him move into other directions. Uh, yeah. What was what happened there? Oh, I know really a lot of a lot of things. I know, but yeah. but existentially or intellectually, did he come right. to different conclusions? Did he change his mind about some things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So basically, you know, um, just to give a little bit of background, he had built up this pretty strong working class organization called the Conference for Progressive Labor Action and of the american workers party and its whole identity was around how they were non-sectarian how they were open and flexible and that they weren't going to get caught up in creed and dogma so even though they were marxists right they they were they just weren't about sort of uh just endless theoretical debates or whatever it was all about being with workers in their experiences and and sort of being able to be flexible and then um one of the things that happens is that his movement is uh, is that the the, the tratius group, the Communist League of America, wants to uh, merge with his organization. And I won't get into all of the details of that, but su- suffice it to say that, I mean, basically they, the, the CLA entered that, uh, um, that fusion dishonestly. And if you read through the historical record, you see all of this sort of deceitful, hypersectarian, hyperdogmatic sort of behavior that alienates all of the so-called mustyites. I mean, one by one, they're like, you know, forget this. You know, these people are crazy. You know, we're not. They're not going to get us anymore, anywhere. They're basically disconnecting us from the working class, and and you know, um, and 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 musty fights them tooth and nail. I mean, that's one one other thing about musty is because that I point out in the book is he, he's, he, he's a, he's a fighter. Like he, he's, and he's very shrewd. Um, he doesn't build these organizations just by the force of his charismatic personality, right? He's because he, instead he does it out of this sort of shrewd sort of organizational tactics. He challenged James Cannon and, um, Max Shackman, you know, to the end and fought them tooth and nail, but he ultimately lost. And so he, that kind of pro- You know, leads him into a crisis where he begins to wonder if perhaps um, the that the problem that that there's sort of a inherent problem with this Marxist left that they are so they have such a materialistic and mechanistic view of human beings that they're really um, willing to do anything right to get what they want, and so he says, you know, if we're gonna if you want to be a revolutionary, you have to always put human dignity and the value of human lives at the center. So, And then, of course, this is reinforced by this transcendent religious, religious experience he has in a church in Paris, which tells him to return to the church and to pacifism. So when he goes back to the pacifist community, I don't think he ever gives up on being a revolutionary. Um, but I think he thinks the way to be a revolutionary and not become sort of an ideologue or dogmatic or whatever, is to um, always have this sort of spiritual sensibility, this sort of um, connection to God as sort of a way of guiding you and giving you a sort of ethical code, you know, that you would know where you're going to draw the line, and and that's
0: important. So he gets caught between the Marxist left, which is ideological, and conservative labor leaders who are anti-communist, pro-nation, who want to buy into the New Deal. Yes. And so he's in this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Like, one thing that I think is really significant is he leaves the secular left and the labor movement in 1936, right when the Wagner Act is being passed, right when labor is finally, you know, getting a voice, you know, collective bargaining and and, um, becoming sort of a junior partner in the Democratic Party. And he actually could have gotten – some you know jobs within some of the big unions at that point, you know, as education director or whatever. But he is, you know, is you know he was part of the Trotskyist movement. You know, he's he's a real radical. He's not a, a reform. Republican.
0: He's not a reformist. In fact, he hates guy. reformers. Yeah, <laughs> because part yeah. of it is, of course, a reformer is always just trying to fix the system that's yeah. already there.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: right. that's
1: right. And you know. And also where he has this sort of prophetic sensibility, too, where, you know, he's like, well, if the labor movement becomes associated with the Democratic Party, and clearly we're on our march to war, it's the late 1930s, then the then labor is going to become sort of complicit in American empire. And, you know, there's some truth to that, obviously, And um, but he always goes with the most radical truth, you know, um, and so that's another virtue of being able to go back to the pacifist movement and to Christianity is that then he can kind of,
0: you know. Let's talk about fat pacifism, which is sure. a, a big part of the book. Uh, he started off as a pacifist. He kind of left it, not didn't leave it, but just sort of set it aside for the labor. Then he gets decision with labor. He's back to pacifism again. Uh, but pacifism is very complex. I mean, there's a lot yes. of things. It has a lot of faces. It has a lot of things, you know, they don't all agree. It's not one thing. So yeah. let's talk about pacifism at the time, the different kind of sure. wings of it, and how he felt fell into it. Where is he on the pacifist continuum?
1: Sure, yeah, that's a great question. Um, okay, well, a couple of things just for background. Um, obviously, there's the long-standing tradition of the historic peace churches, right? Um, conscientious objection or... Um uh, just sort of an anti-war perspective, um, not necessarily a political perspective in the, you know in the in the past. Um, but then one of the things that happens uh, basically during World War one and afterwards is that pacifism begins to become popular in among liberal Protestants. And it's part of the general revulsion against the war, the World War one that that happens. And so you have all of these people taking these pledges that they will never support another war. And these are very dramatic ceremonies where people. I mean, I read stories about um, people. And, and by the way, this happened a lot in the sort of in the student Christian movement, YMCA, and so forth, where you would like hold a candle and go into the water and renounce war and racism and all of this. So um, anyway, so pacifism becomes pretty widespread in the liberal Protestant churches, and that's where you have um, the birth of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is uh, uh, the most important pacifist organization in American twentieth-century American history. Um, or at least, uh, yeah. Actually, I think that's true. Um, anyway, but here's the thing: they're, they're pacifists, and they're even though they sort of have these socialist in, in, inclinations, they're very uncomfortable with working class militancy, collect you know, collective action, and so forth, because they think it's coercive. Right? You're coercing the employer to you know do what you want, and and for them, that's a, 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 a sign of violence. Um, well, that's one of the reasons why Musty gets alienated from pacifism in the you know in the late twenties and early thirties. So one of the things he brings when it comes back to pacifism is this is this belief that you you have to take sides. You know, you have to take sides on the on the part of the, the 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 weakest among us, upon you know, with the oppressed, and also this commitment to collective action too. I mean, and organization, and um, so. But uh, basically, uh, this is where we kind of get to the birth of nonviolence, right? Um, because American pacifism was largely individual, right? Or it was reformist, right? Lobbying, um, sort of, yeah, basically lobbying techniques. Um, to not to enter I mean, into wars. Yeah, not to get you into wars and so forth, um, and so he, he you know, he's always been sort of, you know, a syndicalist of sorts and very much committed to direct action, obviously really committed to collective um, projects and so forth. So um, Gandhi and nonviolence kind of offers, offers an opportunity to say, look, you can use this method and it can be effective in creating dramatic social change and it can be collective and so forth. Um, now, uh, there are so... One of the points I try to make is that this um, this encounter with Gandhi and Gandhian nonviolence is a huge process, right? It's not as simple as pacifists read about Gandhi and start to do what he... Because, in fact, pacifists have been reading about Gandhi's ideas for years, right? But they still weren't so sure that they would work in the United States. Um, and that's actually particularly two of African-Americans who admired Gandhi and the Indian movement, but few of them were thought pacifism would be a very good idea. Um, and so musty has to sort of, he sort of Americanizes pacifism in a sense, right? He, um, uh, he does all sorts of theological work to prove that it, it's, it's, you know, Christian and, and that it, it, it's a, you know, that it's basically sort of um, Christ in action. He also, um, he also modifies it somewhat. He never emphasizes a lot of that as sort of um, the sort of aestheticism of Gandhian nonviolence, like, you know, the sort of sexual abstinence and eating like a vegetarian and all of that. That was never part of Musty's vision. Um, and then he, he also, in addition to sort of theorizing it, he also then bin, uh, builds institutional support for it, right? He gets the FOR to form a Committee on Nonviolent direct Action. He hires James Farmer. He hires Bayard Rustin. He hires Glenn Smiley, all of these guys, you know, who are going to become pretty famous in the civil rights movement. He's organizing them in 1940, 1941. And this is the founding of the Congress of Racial Equality. It's when they start to experiment with Gandhian nonviolence and so forth. So he's, his relationship to pacifism is, on the one hand, he's admired by all pacifists because of that method of, that dialogic method of communication I talked about and his and his incredible organizational effectiveness. Um, but by the same token, he's always a radical within the movement, you know, because a lot of them were sort of very hesitant about Gandhian nonviolence. And, you, you know, when you read through the, the papers of the Fellowship of Reconciliations, um, somebody's always trying to sort of get Musty in control, you know, he's going too far, or whatever. So, um, yeah, so he sort of embodies the radical wing of the past.
0: So he's trying to, he's trying to like break uh, this uh, bi- binary of violence versus passivity. Right. Yes. And say there's another way that that can be effective. It's not violent, but is that uh, is effective. But it, it's action. It's not mm-hmm. just sitting and letting people walk all over you, which is the right. way people think in terms of a lot of times about pacif- pacifists that they don't right. do anything. They just sit right. there. Right. So he's trying to break through that. Yeah. Tension. Yeah but uh is his contribution to to pacifism the basically is it is he re, is he renewing it or causing a revival of pacifism
1: yeah absolutely because you know pacifism was not in very good shape by the end of the 1930s first of all the, the it had been completely um i well, not completely, but anyway, it had lost a lot of legitimacy because of its ambivalence about the labor movement. I mean, because labor, the labor question was the, the the question of the day. And if you were liberal to left, you know, that was your sort of, that was the key to, you know, sort of reconstructing the social order um, or reforming the social order. And so... They sort of lost a lot of friends because of that. Um, Reinhold Niebuhr, his his first break with pacifism was precisely around the labor question. But then you also have war approaching. And, um, you know, a lot of Americans, you know, supported neutrality or had isolationist sentiment. But ultimately, uh, by 1940, you know, um, most people on the liberal left think that the United States should go to war. And so pacifist opposition to war also makes them quite illegitimate. so they're losing they're not you know it's sort of interesting. it's not that they're losing members, but they're sort of losing um, legitimacy. And so he does create this sort of pacifist revival. He brings all these young
0: people into the movement and generates a lot of activity and so forth. part, part of it was the, it was about using pacifism for domestic change. Pacifism yes. had been so much about war, foreign wars, yes. and now yes. he's bringing it in and saying we can use pacifism and these techniques of nonviolent resistance to deal with race and other labor, other issues that we have yes. here domestically.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, one of the things that I see with Musty throughout is he's always an internationalist, but he's also very much has this idea that first you need to take the beam out of your own eye or whatever, whatever that expression is. Right. Um, and so he's, he's, he's very much that, uh, about, you know, the only people who are going to solve these problems are the people who live here. And that, you know, before Americans can tell other people about how they should lead their lives, they need to cl- get their own house in order. And so you see that again and again, he's very much interested in, um, uh, in, well, in not being
0: a paternalist, I suppose. Um, and he, he gets beyond uh, just uh, non-violent resistant, uh, resistant, but he also gets into the uh, anti-nuclear movement. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. After I mean, the he's, bomb. He, he's, he he really is the key mo- per- person in that movement, um, in, in making that happen, I think. Um, so, you know, what... With, with the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, pacifists across the ideological spectrum, you know, liberal, moderate, whatever, all condemned it, you know, universally. But as sort of a national security state is sort of built in, and, and the nuclear arms race really begins um, after about 1947 or so, um, it becomes really clear to Musty and other people who are coming to identify as radical pacifists that you need to essentially be against the state you need to be do civil disobedience and i go into sort of the 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 way they understood that in sort of religious terms because it was very much about sort of taking suffering upon yourself this idea that by by sort of um first of all engaging in penance for the bombing of hiroshima and nagasaki um saying you know and, and then taking suffering upon yourself that this would sort of helped to bring other Americans to an awareness of their sin and and the need for them to take action for peace. Anyway, the radical pacifist movement was, um, uh, you know, uh, ext- it, it became mostly associated with this group called the Peacemakers, which Musty led. But, it you know, at the height of the Cold War, there was so much conformity and consensus that they just became more and more marginal and started to really turn toward um, the building of... Uh, alternative communities and that sort of thing. And that was never Musty's thing. I mean, he one of the things I think you've already pointed to this is he was an urban, working-class guy and a modern, and he, you know, he just found that all sort of Go, Going back to the land
0: and intentional yeah, yeah. communities and we can't do anything about the society, but we'll build our own, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. He, he would say things like, that's just an outlet for um,
1: – discouraged middle-class types or some, there's some sort of expression he made about that. So he's very eager to rebuild collective peace action, right? And that's how he gets involved in movements for building a a sort of non-aligned movement, you know, against the cold war. um, And does a lot of international work on that. He also uh, creates the, helps to create the committee on nonviolent action against nuclear weapons, which engages in all sorts of sort of collective projects he also is really involved in the creation of same, which is a liberal group. Though he does leave it when they become more anti-communist.
0: And so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's actually so much more work to be done. Well, the, it's it. amazing to me how he was involved. He, he had his finger in just about every pot yes. of radicalism.
1: Yeah, he, he really did, and that's that's why I chose him as a subject because. I felt like I was really interested in the history of the left. I mean, it changes so much over the course of the 20th century, you know, from sort of having a labor orientation toward having, towards sort of a more existentialist politics where sort of subjectivity and sort of taking this stance against the state becomes important. And so I, I he just was the perfect vehicle for doing that. And he was also an intellectual, so then I could kind of, um, you know, he wrote, he would write dozens of articles a year, and he was constantly uh, reading books and reflecting upon new theory and 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 or the political situation or whatever, and trying to sort of engage it with his practice. And so it was also allowed me to sort of tell this kind of intellectual history as well. So that's why I chose him.
0: And also, uh, he does he doesn't just start uh, domestically. But he, he's going international by the, by the end of his life. He is involved in uh, anti-colonial movements. He's involved with South Africa. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And so he's just everywhere. It's just pretty phenomenal, I think, of what, how much he's everywhere and how much he's not anywhere in the historiography until you, (laughs) you came along. Well, I know that
1: was, and you know, that's a, that is an interesting question, like why and how he has suffered from scholarly neglect. I mean, I think in many you know, that we historians have to really look at that. I mean, I I know that, you know, present concerns shape our interest in the past. That's what people say. But it can also somewhat be a problem, right? Where we're sort of ignoring the archival record. We're sort of overlooking figures who contemporaries consider to be at the center of everything, right? He's on the boards of all these organizations, if not heading them, and uh, and so forth. So that that I think that is. I hope. I, you know what I really hope is that, as you mentioned, he's involved in so many different organizations. He's crisscrossing the globe, particularly in the during the Cold War and so forth. You know, I couldn't follow all of that. Like I didn't have the the resources, right, or the time really to like go to England and you really look at the records of the CND. I couldn't go to India where he spent much of his time and, and kind of look at their records and so forth. Um, I could, you know, luckily his archive was very rich. And so I could, you know, I could read some of the correspondence, he, you know, his correspondence with these figures. But I'm hoping that this book will, you know, lead to more scholarship on Musty and the movements he was associated with.
0: I do have a question about uh, in the lab. Uh, one of the last chapters, you talk about his search for a third way. Yeah, what was the third way?
1: Well, I think you know it's funny because that term I think gets associated with um, uh, with a certain reactionary element in Vietnam. But at, but before that happened, they called it like third camp or third way or non-alignment. And essentially, the idea was, and and uh, and this was emerging out of the. Um, decolonizing world as well, right? The idea that at, Bandung, at the Bandung Conference in 1955, where um, all of these Asian new new nations um, come together. And that's the idea that, you know, don't get caught in this Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. We need to find a, a third way of, and, and that third way would be sort of a form of nonviolent socialism, or at least in Musty's mind, it would be nonviolent, right? Um, socialism of, you um, of anti-militarism, of not getting caught up in sort of hyper-nationalism and so forth, and so he thought that was the key to sort of trying to get past this sort of uh, this sort of anti-communist ideology in the United States.
0: Did he did he believe that uh, these uh, colon- post, uh, post-colonial nations could uh, get their self-determination without having to fight colonial powers? that they could somehow, with through nonviolence, come to some peaceful resolution of this uh, relationship between the colonial country- nations and the colonizers?
1: Not really, no. I mean, he sort of hoped, as some of them were emerging early on, that that would be possible. Um, he has some really uh, interesting... Oh, gosh, I'm beginning to forget the person's name. Uh, very interesting conversations with... Um, it's in the book. It's okay. (laughs) African nationalists, but then also interesting conversations with people who are um, in the anti-apartheid movement and so forth. And there certainly is an effort to kind of familiarize them with nonviolence. And so he's very gratified when this all African conference in Accra is called, I think it was in Accra, um, or Accra, I'm mispronouncing it, I'm sorry. Um, uh, And they allow him and other pacifists to talk about, Positive nonviolence or whatever, but no, he doesn't. He 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 knows that uh, that it's pretty unrealistic, and um, but he
0: still supports the movement. He's able to do that. So so uh, he says, and one of the things that he believed was you cannot have political democracy without economic democracy. Mm -hmm. And so he's fighting for economic democracy. What is his uh, uh, view of the state? Is he an anarchist or what is his view of the state? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's something I've wrestled with. I think he's I think he's ambivalent about the state. And I think um and we see that, you know, we just talked about his view of the Wagner Act and so forth. Um certainly he what is his view of the state? Well, first of all, he certainly recognizes that these emerging nations need to have a state right that that's sort of and that's their right and imperative but as an american pacifist he thinks the american state has become this military you know the military industrial complex and um and probably is incapable of reform so there's a certain positionality he has he's in the belly of the empire as it were right and so he's sort of anti-status based on that but he also recognizes that a state can be useful for people. So he's he's always on the edge between anarchism and socialism. And you know, in fact his the the pacifists in general, particularly radical pacifists, tend toward anarchism. And so they often criticize him and Bayard Rustin for being such socialists. I think his main goal, I think he remained a socialist. I think he thought states would probably be necessary, but his goal was really to democratize it and demilitarize it. And um, But, you know, that's why I did that whole discussion about his work with the Indian, um, with Indian nationalists in the 1960s, early in the 60s, because they're sort of grappling with similar sorts of questions. I mean, obviously, they're, they want a state, but as their state becomes engaged in sort of conflicts with China and, and so forth, you know, this whole question of well, what kind of military defense do we want to have, and these questions of national security, and um, and, for, and, and so there's some really interesting conversations that Musty has
0: with them. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm not giving you a very satisfactory no, answer. No, it's, it's it's complex. <laughs> I mean, I saw the complexity right there in the yeah. book. So, what do you think is uh, Musty's legacy? After his death, the last part of the 20th century, even today, what is his legacy?
1: Well, uh, what is his legacy? Well, first of all, I think that there's a couple of things. One is that he, throughout his life, as a as a radical, and this is true of many on the liberal left particularly um, before the Cold War, was that he really had this transfer- transformative vision of social progress, this idea that you have to have a vision of the better life, and you have to think that you can change the world if you want anything to happen. And that view becomes more and more illegitimate over the course of the post-war period, and I would say it's pretty illegitimate now because people see it as a claim to power or whatever, to the idea that, okay, you know, we need to work together and so forth. Um, so that, in, in that sense, I think his legacy is an important one because, um, you know, he was able to mobilize so many people and inspire so many people and build social movements. I think um, his legacy may also, you know, and this is sort of related to this, the fact that he kind of becomes more and more sort of this prophet without a base. And I mean, I guess he has a base because he builds the movement against the war in Vietnam, but his I guess his acts, his political acts, are um, seem increasingly sort of unrealistic or that, like they do become really, diluted. They become yeah, it's like yeah. it's like it doesn't result in what he expects it to more and more. You know, it's sort of just he wants to live by his particular prophetic
0: sensibility or political analysis. Um, do you think any of his ideas are filtered down to the, the recent Occupy movement? I you know I kind of.
1: You know, it's funny you say that. Uh, I don't remember when it was. Maybe about three years ago, I was reading um, the, New, uh, the New Yorker, and there was some little column about somebody in the Occupy movement. They were interviewing him, and he was saying how um, some place named the, named the A.J. Musty Institute let them use their offices as part of one of their demonstrations. But he had no idea, you know, why this institution would have let him or any real connection to A.J. Musty. So I think there's very little historical memory of A.J. Musty. And, um, I mean, so I, I don't know. I mean, his, I mean, he certainly has a legacy because I don't think that there would have, um, I don't know if the African American civil rights movement would have really had this deep emphasis on, um, on, uh, nonviolence, right. Without Musty's work and the sort of institutional theological support he provided, um, but.
0: So, um, what's the takeaway for the reader? What's the main thing? The one thing you would want them to remember about Musty? Yes. Well, I actually think this
1: idea that um, that he had about this sort of vi- this this I know this sounds kind of reactionary in today's lexicon, but he did believe ultimately that uh, as human beings we are obligated to take action. And that it's not where you come, but it's where you're going. And um, this real idea that you have, I mean, he used to quote Proverbs, you know, without vision, people perish. Like the need to have a vision, the need to, um, and the need to act collectively and not just individually.
0: Um, I think that's probably really important. Well, um, you've been very generous with your time, but I have one final question. And that is, what are you working on now?
1: Well, right now there's uh, several projects I'm sort of playing around with. Um, one is I'm I'm in some discussions with some other colleagues about doing an anthology on the history of the religious left, um, kind of exploring how it's different from the secular left. Um, and uh, and to some degree, also, um, this relates to another project I'm interested in, which is sort of the transnational, you know, before it was in Vogue, um, people in the religious left were forming sort of crossing borders, forming transgressive communities and countercultures, right? And so trying to really look at those connections in a way I wasn't able to with this book just because of constraints on my, you know, financially and resource-wise, but really taking them to these sites where they, you know, were in collaboration and community with others and trying to understand that. Um, The other thing is I became very, and this probably is, Obvious in the book, I became very interested in the workers' education movement because um, I thought that the theory and practice that they were engaged in was so sophisticated and so interesting, and it was also a transnational movement. I mean, that's one thing that's not really part of the story, but they, you know, they were going to experiment in Europe, and Europeans were coming here. Same with Latin America and so forth. So, and there's also an interesting narrative there too about sort of how that workers' education movement is so expansive in its vision, in its practices, and so forth. And then what happens when it's institutionalized um, within the AFL and a CIO um, uh, and its relationship to adult education and so forth. So, you know, sort of that opening up of possibility and then how it kind of – you know, it's interesting. I did find this article a couple years ago in – I think it was New Labor Forum, but I could be wrong, where they – where somebody had discovered all of the work Musty had done, you know, theorizing labor education and how to do it. And I think that's actually a legacy that um, I would like to see sort of acknowledged and, and explored. That, you know, I think reading what he and David Sappas and some of these other figures were doing. Um, could actually be pretty inspirational and instructive to the labor movement today.
0: Well, thank you so much, Leela. Uh, thank you, and thank you, in, in host, thank you Lila, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger. Thank you, Leela, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.